0: Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to John chapter four, John chapter four, with verse forty-six. I've been uh, going through personal encounters uh, with that Jesus had with different individuals. He was great with crowds. He did a great job. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the great uh, sermons ever written and spoken, and he did that to a crowd. But for John, John brought in seven encounters where Jesus had a personal encounter with a person. And some of these were left out of the first three writers of the life of Christ, and John was a young man back then. He was the youngest of the disciples, but uh, now he is older, and, and he's in his 90s, and time's getting by, and so he wants to make sure that these are remembered and because they were very personal to him. and. And it was kind of, John was a person who stayed at night when everybody else had gone to bed, and he and Jesus would sit by the fireside, and they would talk about these encounters that he had, personal encounters. And so he gives seven of those personal encounters. He put it on his Rolodex and said, these need to be in there. And so we're going to look at, we looked at Nicodemus when he was at a personal encounter, and and Jesus was very blunt with Nicodemus, just came at him and said, you must be born again. Nicodemus tried to give him a compliment, said, you must be a teacher from God. And, but Jesus said, you must be born again. Then we saw last week about the woman at the well, and it was an angry lady that came to in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, because she didn't want to be around anybody, she didn't want to be around anything. And she had had five husbands, been rejected five times, and the one that she was living with was not her husband. And she was an angry, lonely person. And Jesus sat by the well, and he said, give me the drink. And it changed her whole life. It was a personal encounter with somebody that maybe you and I may have written off, but Jesus never writes somebody off. And she leads a revival in Samaria because he told her everything about herself. And he said that he was a messiah. First time that he had revealed himself to anybody, and he revealed that to this lady at the well that everybody would have probably written off. Uh, today we're looking at a government official, and a government official is in a crisis situation. And all of us will be in crisis situations. There's nobody that can avoid a crisis situation in the world in which we live in. Ever since Adam and Eve uh, sinned in the garden, crisis moments are written in tragedy, is written into the fabric of life. And all of us face those crisis kind of moments. And here's a man who is facing a crisis moment. And he responds with faith. Now how we act is one thing, but how we react is another thing. And some people react, they go overreact. Um, when you ask somebody on the riverfront to move their boat, how do you act? Get in a fight and all that goes on. That's one way to react. But watch people at a little league ball game. They just go crazy at a little league. Seven year olds are out there and a teenager calls—who who is the umpire calls a strike and they just explode on this teenager. And you think, wow, that's a little overreaction there, don't you think? And there's a kind of ditty that goes like this: when in trouble, when in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. Amen. You just it's not in the Bible, but it's in our hearts sometimes, and it just kind of comes out. How do you react to moments? Some people over underreact. And they see the signs. And they know they should do something, but they kind of just ignore it. Uh, Yesterday, I was uh, in First Baptist Church in Fairhope, and I was looking out into the faces of the medical community in Fairhope, Alabama, and there were a good number of people. And they were there because one of their number, a guy named Bob. Bob was a great physician, well respected of that community. So they all came to show their respects. And it's amazing about story about Bob. Is, Bob uh, had a um, tumor in his brain. He had a brain tumor, and it was the size of a size of a tennis ball. And uh, either he ignored the signs that were there or else he just didn't want to deal with them. Whatever it was, it caught every, he and his family off guard. And after those two surgeries and, and what was left, um, the doctors came to his wife and said, we got to take him off life support, and you got to make that decision. And that was a crisis moment. Because all of us have kind of crisis moments. To that medical community, I told them the story of Muhammad Ali. How many of you remember Muhammad Ali? Would you raise He fought like a butterfly and stung like a bee, amen? And he called himself the greatest. And he was self-complaining. He could very well have been. He was a great boxer and. He won all of his fights, and he was very uh, vocal about what he did. And how he could be one of the greatest athletes. He would say he was the most. He say he was the best-looking athlete that ever was there. Muhammad Ali was not humble in any way. But I told him about when he got on an airplane, and he got on an airplane, and the stewardess or flight attendant came by, and the flight attendant said, uh, "Mr. Ali, you have to buckle your seatbelt." And he said, Superman don't need no uh, seatbelt. And which she replied, Superman don't need no airplane, amen. (laughs) Kind of humbled him right there in the middle of that. And as I looked out at that medical community, I said, there's not a Superman among you. not a Superman among us. There's not a superwoman among any of us or a superman among any of us. All of us face crisis moments. And how will you react and how will I react? Not just act, but how will I react to those crisis moments in my life? Um, Jesus has a way of bringing truth to situations. He is very good with truth. He had grace and he had truth, but sometimes he's very blunt with his truth. And Proverbs tells us if you correct a wise man, then he will be even wiser. But how do you and I respond to truth? Proverbs tells us there's three ways that usually we re- re- we respond or react to truth that comes our way. One way to say you're right. Isn't it, isn't it hard to say? Isn't it just hard to say? Um, Maybe you need to practice that. So would you turn to somebody next to you and just say, you are right? Would you do that? Just turn to somebody next to you and say, you are right? And uh, that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? I mean, we struggle with saying, you're right. And, oh, man. But anyway, we say, you're right. And we accept that. And we put it into our lives and we'll thank the one who has kind of corrected it. But some people, according to uh, Proverbs, is they're fools and they hear what the truth is, but Proverbs calls them mockers. And say, so you hear the truth, but you say deny the truth or ignore the truth. And you don't thank the person who, who gives that truth to you. And you don't thank God for revealing that to me. And you just kind of ignore it. And oftentimes we do that. We hear God's truth and it comes to us in places that we're trying to hide in the dark places that we don't want to look at. There's an elephant in our room, but we want to ignore that elephant and disregard it and keep going with our own lifestyles the way we are living and so there is a fool that does that but then there are those that are evil and they hear the truth and they attack the truth giver and jesus ran into that in the pharisees he'd tell them the truth and he'd hit them with the truth and sometimes he'd bring it in parable sometimes he'd soften it sometimes he'd really hit them hard with that and and they would say, they would, I, I'm not the problem, you're not, I'm not the problem, you're the problem. And that's often something to get it off of ourselves and get it on to somebody else. And you're the problem, if you change, then things would be right. But often, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of change and listening to truth and this is what they did they attacked the truth giver and they put him on the cross because he told the truth and just we have we have a hard time with that uh, tom cruise you remember tom cruise any of you remember tom cruise i think he's my wife's favorite actor tom cruise i'm trying to look like tom cruise i'm, I'm working on it i ain't gotten there yet but i'm i'm still kind I'm, I'm taller than he is. Amen. <laughs> you can't handle the truth. You remember that? Because we struggle with the truth. and We'd rather see it in somebody else and let them do it. But God comes to us. And especially does he come to us in crisis moments. Now, would you stand as we read just one verse from John and then we'll stay there? John chapter 4. It's had to be such great words. We'll just do verse 50. Jesus said unto him, these words, go your way, but hear the words that are just so great. Your son lives, your son lives. Um, When I was in uh, Asheville, North Carolina, I was in a room when they took Susan out and she was having a heart attack. And they took Susan out and I was sitting in that room by myself. And that's that's a difficult place to be I'm a pastor, but faith sometimes, even with pastors, they come kind of hard. And I prayed with her as they took her out and it's had to place her in the hands of the cardiologist. And I waited and waited and waited and waited. And then he came in, took off his mask, and he said these words. Good news. The stent worked. Uh, she was about to close up in the Widowmaker. And the stint worked. And she's in good, healthy shape. And I said, amen. Amen. But how many times will we be there when there is no amen? Will we say amen anyway? Here's a man that's confronted with good news, but so often sometimes we pray and we pray and we ask God, and it doesn't happen like we want it to happen. How will we react? Here he said, your son lives, the child lives. May God bless the reading of his word, and you may be seated. Now, John wants to teach us about faith. What is genuine faith and what is not genuine faith? So if you have your Bibles, look in verse 46. Let's paint this situation for you so that you can hear what John is trying to say to us in the middle of this situation. Verse 46, that Jesus came again unto Cana of Galilee. If you remember Cana of Galilee, that's where he did his first miracle. He did a miracle at a... At a wedding, and it was a beautiful situation. They had running out of wine, so it had to be an Episcopal wedding. Hey, Amen. wouldn't be a Baptist wedding with any wine there. You'd make it into grape juice. That'd be the best grape juice you've ever had. But so that this Episcopal wedding, they had run out of wine, and so they brought it to Jesus. not a big deal. I mean, just let it go. I mean, he's going to be on the cross. Salvation is why he came here to f- uh, forgive us of our sins. Why make a big deal out of this? And uh, the bride and groom never even knew what happened. And the guy that was in charge of the wedding never knew what had happened. But the servants knew because servants knew. And what was just water became something of great value because it had the touch of Jesus. It had the touch of his word that made it that way. They did what he said and they saw what he did. That is a key to all of Scripture. Hear what he says and then do what he says. That's not that complicated, but so often it is for us because he tells us things that we would rather hide and keep in the background, but he brings those things out into our lives, and Jesus is like that. So the first miracle that Jesus did was in a place called Cana of Galilee, and he's back there. He's left Samaria. He's come to Cana of Galilee. Maybe he had some relatives there. That he stayed with, we don't know. But in Capernaum, something else was going on. There was a certain nobleman whose son was sick in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is probably about 40 miles away by the way the crow flies. And Cana is up in the hill section, and Capernaum's right there on the Sea of Galilee. So there's this government official there, and I think he's a very good government official. You know the word about government officials. I'm from the government, and I'm here to help you. Any of you ever heard that, that kind of lie? And this was a man who was in Herod's kind of uh, jurisdiction, and he probably worked in the kingdom with some kind of administrative job. That was there. He may have been a Gentile. If that's so, then Jesus deals with a Jew, then he deals with a Samaritan, and then he deals with a Gentile. So his son was sick. He, He had this fever, and the fever was running great, and they didn't have penicillin. They didn't have any of the drugs in that day. If you reached a certain point in some kind of pneumonia situation, if you didn't get any better, you're just going in the opposite direction. And so his son just lay there dying. And that's a tough place to be. That's a crisis moment. So what does he do? He had maybe heard of Jesus in Capernaum where Jesus had done miracles that were there. So he goes himself on this difficult journey, 40 miles away, and he makes it in one day because he's in a hurry to get to Jesus. The situation is increasingly worse, is not getting any better, and will not get any better. So he comes to Jesus. That's a good place to be, and, and a lot of people come to Jesus with a Christ's faith. And I've seen that happen so often. The cancer's been recognized and diagnosed, and so they get all of a sudden get spiritual, they come to church, they even come on Wednesday night, and they promise to keep the nursery or whatever, if you'll just make me well, whatever. Or maybe it's a divorce, or maybe whatever that situation is that need. There's these come-to-Jesus kind of times, And so it's a kind of come-to-Jesus faith. Now remember I had a guy who, who grew up with his um, mother uh, being a very controlling kind of person, and she controlled his dad. She controlled his dad with anger and criticism. That's what she used all the time. She was angry, and she would criticize him. He didn't do what she told him to do. She would get angry, and so she controlled him that way. He was definitely kind of uh hen-pecked. Amen. Now um is there a henpecked man in this house would you uh, never mind we would just go with that it's okay to be henpecked if you got a good hen but he didn't have a good hen <laughs> so he he said to himself i'll never let anybody control me like that and so he married this beautiful girl and and she was very in Christianity and she's very spiritual. But he controlled her just like his mother controlled his dad. And he would criticize her. And he would get angry at her if she didn't do what he said. And he controlled her. It's called gaslighting in psychological circles today. And so about 10 years later, and I think the divorce rate at 10 years is just is about the time when people kind of separate. And so she said, I've had it. I'm done. We're through. And she left him. He came to me, and he said, what, what should I do? I said, well, let me just, why don't we go get on our knees, and you ask Christ into your life. And I shared with him about Christ. And he got on his knees, and he shared Christ. He invited Christ into his life. And uh, about two Sundays later, I baptized him, buried with Christ, raised to walk in the newness of life. And he went back to his wife and, and things got better. When things got better, I never saw him in church again. That's a kind of crisis kind of faith If I can get from Jesus what I want to get from him, that's a kind of faith that I have. Then I can put him aside, and then I can go on and live my own life without him, and I don't need him anymore. And there's a lot of people that fall in that temptation of that crisis faith that shows up when things are going bad and then when things get better, they kind of put it behind them, and they're going away. And John won't say, that is not real faith. So this is what Jesus said to that moment. If you have your Bibles, he just kind of get blunt to him. He just, this um, official was just begging him, begging him. And the words in the imperfect, I mean, he kept on begging him. And so Jesus said, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Boy, that's the hard kind of faith that comes at him. And sometimes that's what he has to do to get our attention. And he sounds saying this to the crowd, but the man is right there. But something happened when he said that. He hit him with truth. And he responded in a different kind of way. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, if you have a King James Version, yes sir. We have another uh, translation. The word there is "curious." Lord. Lord. You're the Lord. You're the one that controls this moment. I came here with a crisis faith but now I want a confident faith. Not in what you can do for me but who you are. You are Lord. Whether you heal my son or not, you're Lord. I've seen that happen sometimes. I I remember a guy who was an alcoholic and he was uh, ruining his family with his alcohol. And um, he, he wasn't a hard liquor kind of person. He just kept beer out in his truck and and he would go out there and drink beer all the time, and and so he, he wasn't a hard liquor alcoholic, but he was a beer alcoholic. And sometimes he would drink from 10 to 15 beers a day. But if you were asking him if oh, you were an alcoholic, he said, "No, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't drink any of that hard stuff." And it was just destroying his family and his kids. And so there was this kind of intervention. His family did an intervention. And they gathered around him in his living room, and each one told the story about how much you have hurt us. And it was a crisis moment in his life. And the Lord kind of made his way into his heart and he hasn't had a drink since then. It just kind of dawned on him. He didn't realize how much he was hurting others by pushing God's truth away and there were all kinds of signs that were trying to get to him but it took that intervention to kind of help him to realize. So he says, Lord, come down before my child dies. He still has his plea But he sets it in a different kind of... This is faith taken to another level. Faith that says, it's not what you do for me, it's who you are. And you're Lord, whether this turns out for the good or whether this turns out for the bad. You're still Lord. And he has a confirmation sign. If you... Have your Bibles look back and say Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. He could sit there and continue to beg Jesus for give me a sign or something, give me a sign, cross me up, some kind of deal that could happen. But all he has is a promise. And sometimes that's all we have is a promise. And that is so difficult sometimes. Because all we have is a promise. Give me a sign, give me something to hold on to. I remember the children of Israel crossing the Jordan River. Uh, they were told, those in front, they, and you always put, when you cross a river, you put the deacons in front. Amen? Because you want them to be out there in case they get drowned out there in that river. You don't want to be in front of them. You want to be behind them so that they go out there. But crossing the river, he says, okay, open the river and then we'll cross. Mm. You step out. And then the water will part. No, I want it to part, and then that's not fake. So he goes his way, and as he goes away, all he has is his promise to hold on to. That's all he has. Then give him a book or give him a cross or anything like that. It's just to hold on to. In verse 51, his servants meet him, and they meet him, and says, Your son lives. That had to be an awesome kind of word. Same words that I got from that doctor. Good news. Good news. He lives. And he inquired of them the hour, and they said it was about 1 o'clock yesterday, the immediate same hour that Jesus spoke. Jesus heals from a distance, and he can do that. And when I pray for my kids and... In Madison, Mississippi, they are four hours away, and I know that my prayers will cover them, even the four hours. I pray for my son in Birmingham. I really pray for my son in Birmingham, but I pray for my sons and family and grandsons in Birmingham. And I pray for my son in Tampa and his family. And there are distance factors that were there. When I was here at this church church and, and joined the church, then I went to Vietnam. Uh, Mr. Ricks would pray for me, and he he'd pray for me while I was over there. Susan would pray for me. My mom would pray for me. And I remember a day that we were covering a down chopper, and the VC were up there, and they had the high ground, and we were in ter- We were just out there by ourselves, and they could push, and they would have won the whole thing and eliminate. And I thought to myself, I'm gonna die over here in this just barren land, some shallow grave over here. But they didn't push their advantage. They- Back to what? No explanation. My explanation is over here in Selma, Alabama, my mom and my wife and Mr. Rick's, deacon in this church, were praying for me, because God can heal at a distance. Now, it didn't just end there. Verse 53 says, so the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus prayed, your son lives. And he himself, and this is another word, believed. The sign came after the first movement. You obey, and we see the signs later on. Verse 54 says that it was the second miracle that Jesus did because he had done that miracle in Cana, Galilee. This is the second miracle he did in Cana. But if you look at verse 53, what happened was his whole house believed. That's contagious faith. You see, when you get dad to showing his faith, It has a way of showing everybody that kind of faith. And contagious faith is just that. It is very contagious. I thank God for the women in my life. My mom took us to church before uh, my dad was a Christian. But later on, my dad made his faith in Christians. So I thank God that mom took us to church. But as a man, I was looking around for the men in in Central Baptist Church because I wanted to identify with the men and the faith that they had been there on a Wednesday night or whatever night it was showed itself to me and was a witness to me as a boy who was looking for father figures who could just live their life and show their faith. And it's amazing the kind of contagious faith. A man who lives for the Lord and is faithful in those kind of places, not just a crisis faith, but he also has this confident faith and it shows itself in his everyday life. And he sees Christ for not just as a somebody who does what I want him to do, but he sees Christ as the Lord, of, and he lets Christ be himself in those kind of situations. Now, yesterday when I uh, was um, preaching, I, I told the story about a um, farmer who was coming to town and he had this mule team that was he was driving to town and and i don't know if you've ever had mules but they are stubborn as they can be um my great granddaddy would had two mules and nine kids and 100 acres and that's what he did his farming on was two mules 100 acres and that kind of land and he would plow that mule all day and and he'd look at the rear end of that mule all day. And so when he came on to see my great-grandmother, he would tell her, baby, you the best thing I've seen all day. <laughs> 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 Amen. <laughs> but if you ever tried to get a mule to go this way, they want to go that way. When you really want to go this way, they go that way. But uh, this farmer was coming into town, and as he was coming into town, he picked up the preacher. The preacher's car had broken down, and so he picked up the preacher, took him into town, and uh, said he'd be back to uh, help him out with his car. But it took him about four hours to get into town, and it usually takes about 30 minutes. So they said, why did you take so long to get into town? And he said, uh, when I picked up that preacher, those mules never understood a word I said. <laughs> I like that, whether you did or not, I like that. (laughs) Uh, See, you had one language for the preacher and one language for the muse. Okay, Uh, some people have one language at home and they have one language at church. They have one language at work. They have one language at church. But what I want you to see here is a power of presence. The preacher made a difference in what he said and what he did. When we have Christ in our life, then he makes a difference in what we say and how we respond and how we hear the truth that he wants to tell us. And there's this power of presence that he has. This government official felt that power in his presence. And even though he was a long way away, some 40 miles away, he felt the presence of Christ in his life and in his son's life and the rest of his family's life. He made a difference where he was. And I wonder if you're here today and have those things that God's trying to tell you and things that you need to do and you push them away and whatever, Or maybe you have used Christ and you got really spiritual when some kind of crisis came into your life. And yet when that crisis was solved, you kind of backed away. Maybe you didn't get the answer that you wanted. And it's hard to kind of hold on when you don't hear those answers. Uh, Prayer is three ways that God answers prayer. One, he said, gives you a miracle, and I've seen those miracles happen. Another way is for him to say, you do this and I'll do that. And you take those kind of treatments that need to be taken and watch God bring His healing touch into those kind of treatments. But sometimes He says no. But whenever He says no, and He said no to Paul when He wanted His thorn in the flesh taken away, He'll give you strength. And you'll feel His presence more than any other way when you walk through that valley of the shadow of death now our uh, hymn of invitation today is written by B.B. McKinney if you have your hymn books would you turn to 622 622 uh, B.B. McKinney you see down at the bottom he's the one that wrote not only the words but the music he was a good uh, teacher at Southwestern he was a good uh, music man but Look at those words. Um, I am satisfied with Jesus. He has done so much for me. He has suffered to redeem me. He has died to set me free. I am satisfied. I am satisfied. I am satisfied with Jesus. But the question comes to me as I think of Calvary. Is my master satisfied with me? That's our invitation Him. So would you bow your heads as we go to the Lord in prayer, and maybe there's somebody with a need. Maybe you have a person in your life that is going through cancer or going through whatever situation they're going through. And they, it's one of those need situations. And all of us come into those well, none of us are Superman or Superwoman. Maybe it's a family crisis. Whatever it may be, there's a need for, light, for Christ to intervene and bring things together that are kind of drifting apart. Maybe there's a place in your life that you want to just hold on to and you don't want God to move, uh, deal with that and just leave it out there, leave me alone, and let me tell you, he will leave you alone. But maybe there's a place deep inside of you you need to say God help me I can't do this by myself I've tried and tried and tried but it still keeps coming back maybe it's an anger situation whatever it may be whatever your moment just let God speak to you there in your place is my master satisfied with me Maybe you need the courage to step down. Maybe you've never been baptized. Maybe you need to join this church. Is my master satisfied with me? Lord, lead us to act, not only to hear, but also to do. And to set you in the place that you need to be in our life, to be Lord of our life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now would you stand as Frank leads us in our invitation.